Welcome to Lost in Menstruation, a podcast for women who want to find a better way to hormonal health. I'm your host, Gemma Barry, an ex-nurse, period activist, comedian and herbalist. You might think that's a strange combination, but I wouldn't be where I am without those skills, let me tell you. Be ready for health tips and banter, no filter talking, belly laughs, and most importantly, finding your map so you aren't lost in menstruation. This is the stuff you wish you'd known years ago, but it's never too late. Let's get started. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Lost in Menstruation. Today, I am joined by the wonderful Sarah Griffin. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Hello. I, I'm I'm in the same hellscape that we're all in at the moment, so it's kind of par for the course. Really? <laughs> uh, yep. We're all melting, and uh, because of noise and stuff we've switched off fans and windows so we are like <laughs> wetty little bubbles at the moment for sure um sarah is a fellow comedian um so tell us how why when did you start in comedy what's your what's your story uh, so i i uh, have been a performer like my whole life like my, my whole whole life i started when my first pro- professional gig when i was 10 um so i've i've always been begging for people's attention and i think um moving that into the realm of comedy um was just when i realized that it wasn't really enough for me to say other people's words and have people looked at me i I wanted to say my words and have people look at me um i i got into a style of comedy that like i tried doing observational stuff at first like man running doesn't that suck um and it was just terrible it was really really awful and you can see people going like we like you we enjoy spending time with you but can you please say something relevant (laughs) um and so i got into doing more stuff about um kind of i i also spent a lot of years as a teacher and so it's my way of of joining those uh the the need to explain um and the need to be seen and that's kind of where my comedy sits is a so this is the way the world is let's let's look at why why do we think we do these things? Yeah. Um, and it's really, as a performer, one of the few spaces where I'm allowed to to ask those questions. Yeah. I love how we find our feet with um, like what we want to talk about. And, and it always comes back to being relatable. And there's that like knife edge of doing a TED talk yeah. or, you know, being funny. And uh but yeah, and I love when I when I've watched uh, you know people on the circuit and stuff grow and and try different things. Like it's that's that's what's brave about it is just trying all these different things. And like you say, sometimes you think, oh, I'll do this kind of humor because maybe that's what I enjoy or I've seen a lot of. And then when you try and do it, you're like, oh no, I can't do that. <laughs> this feels <laughs> really weird. <laughs> the performers that I like are really good at that. Yeah. I'm not. <laughs> But other people do it really well. Yeah, yeah, it's so interesting. Uh, I'm definitely with you on that, like, I guess the perspective of how you see your worldview and sharing that with others is, I love that stuff. Um, I definitely enjoy, um, like, the surrealist element of where people can go with that and thinking different things and stuff, yeah. Oh, yeah, like, comedy is is a fantastic tool for being able to look at the extremity of the experiences that we have and answer that with our own kind of aesthetic extremity right so you can get surreal you can get absurd you can go as many 
um, wild directions as you want because life already does, right? So all you're doing is talking about that experience in a way that makes sense to your brain. And hopefully there's somebody else in the audience that it makes sense to their brain too. Yeah. And I love what, you know, what makes people laugh. Uh, I fell down a rabbit hole this morning uh, and absolutely belly laughed at an Instagram account that was um showing people who've fallen over you know being hit in the head with a football with things like this is what the year 2020 looks like Uh, and it had me absolutely roaring and i'm a really like i was a nurse i'm (laughs) very helpful uh you know i i like to care for people when they've hurt themselves and all the rest of it but i will still die with laughter when i see someone fall on their ass i think it's the funniest thing in the world um yeah. and i love to be able to do that so i'm going to hell but i'm okay with that <laughs> <laughs> i've seen some some really beautiful analyses of the difference between millennial and zennial humor yeah. um so as a millennial i am very much that dark absurdist dark surrealism kind of uh style of comedy um and then I look at zenial humor, which is just like, step on my neck and kill me now. Like this is, they are so far beyond any kind of level that I have for yeah. what is dark and intimate and, and dangerous because their lives have just been so much more intense throughout the entirety of them than mine was. You know, I had a, a teen years where it was about me being a teenager, not about the world exploding. Yeah. Um, and it's, and it's, so it's interesting. It's, yeah, what, it's like, fascinating to me what that does to their yeah. way of processing. Absolutely. Like I'd never even thought about it like that, but it makes total sense. Um, and I've always really enjoyed watching audiences. Um, I think since I've stepped into comedy as well, but I've always really enjoyed watching audiences uh, and their reactions to stuff and how it divides people and like you like and it will be that like age sort of divide of people like no you can't laugh at this and then the other half of the audience are like tears streaming down their face they're laughing so hard and you're like yeah. wow this is really interesting yeah there's um there's a lady called uh sophie scott i don't know mm-hmm. if you've heard of her she does um she looks into a lot of like the psychology of laughter and things like that. And um, I hear her on the radio sometimes. She's brilliant. It like, it really uh, is so fascinating, I think. So yeah, definitely look that up. Um, So you have come with a story today about a hernia. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was diagnosed uh, as having a a hiatus or a hiatal, however you want to say it, uh, hernia when I was 25 um, and it took me actually staging a sit-in in the doctor's office to get diagnosed because they're like, you're 25, you don't have a hernia, calm down. And I'm like, I very much do and would like to eat something that isn't soup. Let's do this. Yeah. Um, and it, it had been a thing that actually uh, is congenital. So my, my father had the same muscular weakness that causes yeah. a hernia. Um, should I explain what actually this is? Because I don't know yeah, that everybody actually knows what that. Yeah, sorry. Let's let's wind this back and actually give some context. Um, so uh, a hiatus hernia is, and uh, a hernia is any place where uh, your muscles aren't, or the sheet of your muscle isn't strong enough to main, to contain the things that it's supposed to contain. So in my case, organs. Um, and it's uh, my the my diaphragm, the muscle that controls my breathing. Um, has uh, a weakness where it 
aligns with the top closing sphincter of my stomach. And so my stomach actually comes through my diaphragm very slightly. You're nodding. You're a nurse. You know all this. Yep. <laughs> I really hate explaining stuff to people that already know it. It makes me feel so pretentious. Oh, no, not at all. I do. Uh, There'll be lots of people listening who have no idea. So it's all good. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the stomach comes through. And what that means is that my stomach doesn't actually really close at the top entirely um now mine is very small i'm very lucky like as as long as i control my diet and i don't drink too heavily and like you know i'm not doing too many handstands then you know i'm okay um (laughs) but um what it does mean is is that my whole life i have had digestive issues because my stomach doesn't close and when your stomach doesn't close you are actually slowly digesting your own throat um and that's that's an intense experience (laughs) um it's a lot to deal with when you're a kid yeah um, and what it's meant is that kind of my whole life, I've had these these very long periods where I couldn't eat solid food. And for a 10-year-old or a 16-year-old, that doesn't make sense because most people associate, including people in the medical profession, associate hernias with being considerably older because statistically you are more likely to be older. Um, so nobody ever checked. Um, and then as as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm an American. Um, and that means that if you're going to check, you're going to pay for it. Yes, it does. Uh, like I, I wasn't diagnosed until I got to the UK because until I got to the UK, I didn't have the $3,000 that it would have taken for me to get diagnosed, um, and wouldn't even have known to ask for it in the first place, even if I had. Yeah. Um, and that is just, you know, anyone who thinks privatization is a good thing. (laughs) It isn't. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and it, it, you know, it leads to long-term effects. Then I can't, we could do a whole other episode. If you want to talk about what it was like to grow up, you know, not having a lot of money in the States with, with medical, like the number of people I know that have performed surgery on themselves, including people in my own family. It is wow. wild. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, uh, where's a good place to start? Cause like genuinely, cause it's my whole life. Where do I start? So like the um so not being heard is like is such a common theme. Yeah. Uh, I mean it's like uh, this medical patriarchy, right? That yeah. as as a, well, it doesn't matter who you are, but it's just derived that if you don't fit the mix of uh, well, this is you know this is what happens when you're older. So we'll we'll discredit that. We won't even listen to the fact that that's what you're saying and that you have a family history of it. We won't listen to that. And yeah. in, and certainly um, with like gynae problems, it's ten times worse. Mm. And um, and if you align with being a woman, you know, even if and as you don't uh, non-binary with it, but even though that you look and present as a woman to a medical person, yeah. Just having that against you will completely make them disregard what you're saying. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And even, including, unfortunately, when you're talking to women. Yeah. Like, I, I, I know, um, so BMI has been this huge thing in my life because, you know, being, being a person that um, can't always eat solid food, I've never really been big. Yeah. Um, but that was a thing that was used as a tool against me when I was first seeking diagnosis. So what would happen is I would go in and be like, I can't eat solid food. And they'd be like, well, you really should. And I'd be like, you think? Really? Is that a good idea? Oh, I'll look into it. Yeah. Um, 
And what would happen is I would get these scare stories. And like at this point in my life, um, uh, most of the medical professionals that I was in contact with were female. Yeah. Um, and I would get these scare stories about what would happen if I didn't start, in, in their words, developing a healthier relationship with food. Because what they were saying, but not saying, is you have an eating disorder. Yeah. You're binging and purging or you're an anorexic. 100% not the case. I was trying so hard to eat. Um, I have so many little tricks. If anybody ever needs, like, find me on Twitter. I will give you a million tricks for how to trick yourself into eating because I've, I've made this toolkit for what I can do to get around my own hernia. Yeah. Um, but they would say, you know, right now your BMI is in the low twenties. And if you drop below 21, what's going to happen is you're going to, you're going to have dysmenorrhea. You're going to start losing your ability to menstruate. It's going to affect your ability to have kids. It's going to, and I'm like, well, first off, not menstruating sounds like fucking great. So that would be really cool to me. Um, second off, don't want kids. Um, and third off again, I am trying to eat. Yeah. Um, and the wild thing for me is that now my BMI is like one above what it was before. And everybody's like, you are 100% absolutely healthy. And you know, if you wanted to, you could lose a few pounds. Whoa, Yeah. this is not what I was being told 10 years ago. And my weight has not shifted that much. <laughs> like, yeah. So you um, were absolutely, you were pigeonholed as having an eating disorder. Yeah, and absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, which is just nuts because that's looking at you as a young person like that you fit the mold of oh yeah having you know this is what you must be having or doing um and it's you're not being listened to it drives me mad yeah Yeah. um Um, so yeah so that was that was that was what i view as as a very patriarchal oh you are young and a woman uh, i didn't identify as a woman at that point um, and therefore the only problem that you can have is that you're too crazy to do things right. You yeah. definitely have an emotional problem, not a physical one. Yeah. And just internalizing that idea of why don't I love myself enough to eat yeah. and, and trying to like live with that for, you know, it's, it was good 10 years that I had to have that idea in my head that it was like, I just, I was too crazy to have a sandwich. Yeah. Like that's, that's a wild thing to have to adapt to. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's gaslighting. Yeah. That's, that is what that is. It's be, you know, you presenting with one thing and then uh, you're just being told, no, that's not what it is. You have an eating disorder or there's nothing wrong with you or just eat a sandwich. You'll be fine. Yeah. Um, like, and it's not to say that it's like one person or it's a doctor. It's like the whole thing. This is like a systemic problem within our medical service. And, and in the U- U.S. as well as the U.K., like this yeah. is <laughs> global, um, that we're just not being heard. And the normalization of someone's experience and pain and, you know, treatment and you knowing what's actually going on in your body and being told, no, that's not it. <laughs> yeah. I know because I'm external and outside of your body and I've been to college for seven years and I have a stethoscope around my neck. I know you more. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the wild thing for me was I didn't actually receive my diagnosis until I had a doctor that had the same thing. Yeah. So that's the way that I actually had somebody listen to me. And it was a male doctor yeah. um, it, and a male doctor in the NHS um, who said, look, it's highly unlikely, but what you're describing is like a hernia. Yeah. 
Um, and what he did was he put me on omeprazole, uh, which is a, um, uh, a gastric suppressant. So it, you make less acid basically. Yeah. Um, so that I could try to regulate what was happening in my stomach rather than what was happening in my head. Yeah. Um, and that let me start getting some food in and actually start eating solid meals again. Um, and then he said, look, if it keeps on, we're going to, we're going to put you on this for three months, but if it keeps on after this three months, we'll order the test. So after three months, I'm like, you know, I'm doing a little bit better, but we need this test. And he's like, I believe you, we need this test. So I'm going to send you uh, a letter and then um, you need to come back and get another letter from me in person. And then you can have the test because paperwork NHS. Great. I come back in, it's his day off. And I have to talk to another doctor. And the other doctor's like, no, it's going to be six months and you're going to be on this other thing. And I'm like, no, it's not going to be six months. That's not going to happen. Um, And it it genuinely was me going, I'm not leaving. I'm going to sit in your office and you're not going to be able to see anybody else. And you're going to have to get somebody to physically pick my very skinny ass up and move me out of this office. Or you're going to sign this paperwork because I can't, it's torturous. It's yeah. absolutely torturous not to be able to eat. And because you can't eat, you can't work. Yeah. And, and then you can't sleep. And yeah. then like when your own body is eating itself, quite literally eating itself, I was digesting myself. Yeah. I'm, there was no way that I could allow that to continue because some old dude didn't want to listen to me. Yeah. Um, and so he hated me and he signed the paperwork. And then I brought photographs of my hernia back. Like, look, look at this. Look at this thing that I've got in my body. Mm, isn't that wild? I would be handing them out like flyers to all the like health professionals. <laughs> look, look what I've got. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it, it's, it's a shame, but it's a story I hear so often of, of people saying, I just got to the point where I was like, no, no more. I can't do this. You are going to have to like listen to me and then you have to get mad and you know, do extreme things and say stuff that is what could be deemed as, you know, being disruptive or whatever. But it's because you're so frustrated that you're like, I can't live a second more feeling this way and already being misdiagnosed with having flipping, like, how on earth did that make you feel when you got the diagnosis after all of this being told that, you know, you've got an eating disorder and, and just, I can't even begin how that must have felt. So like, it wasn't actually a formal diagnosis. Um, so I've, I've gone through uh, so many different counselors and so many different um, mental health professionals um, for a variety of reasons in my life um, that basically I was never given a, a separate diagnosis of an eating disorder. What they said was when you talk to your counselor, talk about how you deal with food. Right. And so I had had and have anxiety and depression mm-hmm. um, and it I it was treated as that was another symptom. This was yeah. just one more thing that you're doing because of this. And because I didn't have a physical reason, I couldn't argue with them. And so that was just one more thing of me internalizing, um, you know, if I just tried harder, this wouldn't be the case. And I feel like what that did um, was it made it it made it a lot harder for me to believe my own experience, and it made it a lot harder for me to um, to self advocate 
in many ways because I would have to go, oh yeah, it's it's written on the final file. I'm crazy. Uh, you're just going to have to deal with the fact that I'm crazy and there's nothing I can do about it. I've really been trying hard to do stuff about it for a long time. Yeah. Um, but what it also did was there, <laughs> there is, and I don't know if this is because I'm, I'm from Kentucky. Uh, we, there's a very strong uh, Kentucky culture of you don't want to deal with me. I'm crazy. Okay. <laughs> um, this, this is a thing that we are, we are like, we, we have a reputation for being the ones that are just too wild to deal with. Um, there, there was a kind of strength in, I've been crazy my whole damn life. You're not going to change it. Yeah, yeah. So, oh no, am I saying something you don't want me to say? Yes, I'm crazy. <laughs> and, you know, am, am I being inappropriate or somehow not fitting into this box that you want me to? Maybe it's because I'm crazy. I don't... So it became in this thing that had been given to me as a please be quiet and sit in the corner also became a thing that I was like, yeah, but this is why I can't be quiet or sit in the corner. Sorry. Um, so it, it was kind of self-defeating in, in terms of it being a tool of oppression in that way, because it just became a tool of liberation. Thank God. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and that's the yeah, thing, right? Corner, right. <laughs> you, you, it works both ways. It, and this is, this is the really difficult double think of having to exist as an oppressed person is on the one hand, you look at the world around you and the, um, the reality that's been created by the people that are in power and you go, okay, so this is what I know of reality. But obviously your experience doesn't match that reality. So you have two options. Either what everyone else is telling you is reality is not real, yeah. in which case, what standard do you have? Um, or your experience of that system means that you can't be a part of it. Um, and for me, it, it became my experience of the system means that I can't be a part of it in a very structural way, which made me a lot harder to shut up. Because I'm like, well, what are you going to do? Take away my structural power? I have none. <laughs> <laughs> what do you what do you got for me now <laughs> it's so true when i had my uh diagnosis of endo and uh the consultant said to me okay so we're going to start you on hormones and i'm like no and she said well then you're going to need to have a hysterectomy and i'm like no i'm like this can't these can't be the only two options that i have and then she just didn't know what to do with me I was like well I, this is uncharted territory like I don't get people saying no to me and wanting yeah. to think for themselves and trying something different like I don't know so she basically was like I don't know what to do with you but you'll be back here begging me in 10 years time because you won't be able to do this on your own mm. so I'm like okay <laughs> I do like the challenge <laughs> yeah yeah and it, does, it does kind of become that doesn't it because cool. I mean there's always that sure I'll be back here in 10 years and we'll deal with it then what yeah um you know, are you going to tell me that I've been, I'm going to be in pain for 10 years? I've been in pain for 10 years. I know how to do that. Yeah. Um, at, at the very worst, nothing changes, right? Yeah. And I, I have the tools to deal with nothing changing. Yeah. But what if, I, what if I do find a way? Yeah, yeah, exactly that. And I just find it so, well, frustrating, I think is an understatement. But this it just, it's, it's almost like they're offended. Like this, it's like this, the egos are so big that they're like, well, it's my way or the highway. And if you choose to do it a different route, it's like, well, no, like you just have to leave, get out. I don't want to see your face around here. And when I work with people now, like it's amazing because I can say, you know, how do you feel about that? Do you want to do this? And they're like, well, yeah, maybe we'll try this bit, but I don't know how I feel about that. And you're like, well, okay, let's explore that and see, and we'll try it for a bit. And, and it's totally like client led. And that is a wonderful thing 
because you know you get well you get to where you want to go a hell of a lot faster but having having that support um and i enjoy it so much because i have way more autonomy now than i ever did when i nursed yeah yeah <laughs> i was always that person they were like flying around after going jen you haven't done this yeah because it's pointless <laughs> like look at them there's no need to do this 19 page piece of document because they don't need it <laughs> you know it's like yeah um anyway that's I mean, a whole I, other story i i do have great um I do have great empathy for the medical profession because I know yeah. that when you go into a doctor and you don't know what you're talking about and you're in a lot of pain, it means that you can get really angry. It means that you can get really abusive. Like I, I have seen people do things to doctors who are tr who genuinely are trying to help and are trying yeah. to do their jobs and, and it come across horrifically. So like if you've had 10 people talking down to you, even though they are wholly ignorant of what they're talking about, then the one person who comes in and presents with something weird and, and doesn't, also doesn't fit the norm. It, it, of course, it's harder to see that person. Yeah. Um, my personal way of answering that would be pay them better, support yes. them more, cut a huge amount of the quote unquote oversight that is actually just corporate box ticking. Um, like there, there are so many things that we could do that would improve lives for doctors and nurses and outcomes for patients yeah. um, by removing a lot of this structure that doesn't need to be there, which gives them the time and energy to actually go, okay, maybe I don't understand. I'll listen to what you said again. Yeah. I don't um, explain anything in 10 minutes. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's very, well, you've very got literally a hundred people to see in a day and you have to know everything from gastroenteritis to HIV. How are you supposed to be able to, it's, it's an impossible task, yeah. particularly when you're talking about something specialized, yeah. um, which, you know, a hernia isn't really all that specialized, but definitely I've presented with other stuff that is, yeah. I, I have a thing in my eye that they still can't tell me what it is. And I've had two different optometrists go, that's funny. There's not even a word for where that is literally. <laughs> You know, when you when you have to have that kind of specialized knowledge, you know, of course yeah. it's impossible. Yeah. But that doesn't mean I don't want to be listened to. Exactly. Exactly. There are two sides to the coin for sure, but um I don't know what the breaking point will be yeah. to to make them see. Um and I think the trouble is Brene Brown's done an amazing lot of work around how um there is such a lack of empathy and compassion in medical training like they are so quick to throw each other under the bus uh, which i witnessed all the time uh, when i worked in a hospital so there's a very different mindset with uh, the medical profession to um like within doctors to nurses for example yeah um who do have a lot more support and empathy and i mean that's obviously a massive generalization and i don't mean that's you know cut and dry but just you know in terms of how training and stuff is given it can lead to like different uh, mindsets within that field um and yeah. uh yeah it, which like you say about the whole like your background in comedy with what you find funny depend depending on your age group like all of that there's so much to play there uh but yeah there is definitely that kind of <laughs> i'm just gonna throw you under the bus because i just want to get it right <laughs> yeah well i mean i think 
I think this 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 concept that you brought up of of uh, patriarchy in medicine is just hugely at play there because the roles of nurse and doctor are such gendered roles. There is this expectation that nurses are women yeah. and doctors are men, and the woman is going to be there and is going to be doing the in contact patient work, right, is going to be the one helping you get clean or get up and go somewhere or giving you the injections or, you know, you're going to be the, the face that people yeah. see most of the time. And then the doctor is the one that comes in and orders things. Yeah. Is that is, is a more like, I need to know all of the things and tell you how to do the things, but you're just a grunt and you're going to do stuff. Yeah. And when that gets layered then over with all of our expectations about what men are and what women are and what structure is and what care is, then all of a sudden you've got this, this multifaceted shitstorm yeah. where everyone's getting everything wrong because of these, you know, 16 overlaying different expectations, none of which make sense. Yeah, yeah. So true. So true. Um, <laughs> I do remember when I was training and we had this particularly... Uh, difficult character I would say politely um as a doctor who mm. we had a dodgy phone and the cable would cut out every now and then so it was like you'd hung up on someone but you hadn't so we were waiting to get it fixed anyway uh, I was taking a call from him and it he was ranting down the phone at me and then it cut out and I was like oh what divine timing is this so I just put the phone <laughs> down didn't really think anything more of it and he came roaring up onto the ward being all like who was it that hung up the phone on me and blah, 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 blah. And I said, oh, well, it was me. I didn't hang up the phone. It's faulty, blah, 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 blah. And uh, he gets up to the nurse's station and he's like, go and get me the notes for bed eight or something. And I just said to him, can you read my badge? And he looked at me and I was like, I think you might find it says Gemma, student nurse, not secretary. <laughs> I don't know what on earth made me say it. But, uh, you know, when you've just, when everything just goes boo around, <laughs> it was like that. And I didn't get the notes. He went and got the notes. Uh, and yeah, everyone was like, I could have like hugged you at that moment. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not, no, not even a please or thank you. Like that is not how this rolls. Uh, so yeah, it's good to, to not, you know, conform, I think is the premise of that story. <laughs> I will say one of the one of the finest stage managers I ever worked with actually trained as a nurse. Yeah. Um, and she was she was an absolute joy because she had the ability to maintain absolute calm no matter what was going on. Because like nothing that because she had been in psychiatrics, yeah. she had been in pediatrics. Um, like nothing that this production was going to throw at her was going to be anywhere harder than trying to inject somebody on a mental ward, right? <laughs> like, so true. Oh, I'm really laughing, Sarah, because that is so true. So true. <laughs> yeah, but but also she had the I know where everything is. I know the order that everything needs to be done, and she had that administrative sense um, because she had been trained to have that administrative sense. Uh, and then yeah. I, I really like every time I work with her, I'm like, you are a loss to the profession. Like whatever they did to make sure that you didn't stay a nurse, they fucked up because you're incredible. And when a nurse panics, that's really time to lose your shit because it takes a lot for us to panic. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, the sweetest thing about her was that the only thing, and I think it's the reason, I genuinely think it's one of the big reasons she left the profession is she couldn't deal with um, causing other people pain. Yeah. 
Um, so like I had uh, an ingrown toenail from a, a terrible set of shoes that they made me wear for this production that, that were actively damaging my feet. Oh, wow. And um, I was going to have to go to the hospital because it, it had gotten badly ingrown and uh, there was an infected thing around it. It was neon green. I'm not joking. Neon. It glowed. And I have never seen anything like that come out of my body before. And it was both cool and disgusting in equal measure. Um, I and I, it. <laughs> I came up to her and I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say her name because I don't have permission to. Um, call her Debbie. Um, Debbie, uh, should I do something about this? And it was a two show day and I came up to her in the middle of the day. Um, and she's like, you need to get that lanced and you need to get it dressed. Um, we can take you after the show. And after the show, I came up to her and was like, are we going to go? And she's like, look, I can take you to a hospital now and you're going to be there for five hours and it's yeah. going to cost you X amount of money. Um, so, or you have to do a, an insurance claim on it or I can do this for you, but I warn you it's going to hurt. And I'm like, cool, it's going to hurt. Cause she didn't understand that I'd spent my whole life in pain. <laughs> right. When you've lived with a hiatal hernia your whole life, I'm, I'm like, yeah, pain hurts, Yeah, but I'm used to it. Let's go. It doesn't stop hurting, but let's get this done with. It's better than five hours. So she starts like getting all the things together and like sterilizes a needle and, and is going to lance this for me. And then she just can't, she can't make herself do it. And like, she was just, you could see her like psyching herself into it and going, and you know, we got somebody to stand with me in case I wanted to hold a hand. I didn't, I was fine. Um, but you know, we had one of the other cast members there behind me and she starts doing it and it didn't hurt in the slightest. One, cause she was good at what she was doing. And two, just because I had been on an infected foot with an ingrown toenail for a week, like nothing she was gonna do was gonna make this worse. Maybe a relief more than anything. <laughs> exactly, it stopped hurting when she was doing this and like, the really cute thing was once she started lancing it and she could tell that I wasn't like flinching or gritting my teeth or anything because she wasn't hurting me. Um, then she kind of got into it and was like making sure she was doing a good job and like grossed out, but also impressed by how much there was. <laughs> it was great. Yeah, she like, saved me a trip to the hospital and a good couple hundred dollars. Yeah. So more power to her. <laughs> oh, I do love a wound. Um, <laughs> So do you ever talk about any of this stuff on stage? Do you ever like weave it into your shows and things? So what I've talked about on stage is a little different. I've talked about some of my experience with mental health. Um, I've talked about my uh, mother-in-law is a four-time uh, cancer survivor, three times breast, once skin. Um, and one of the things she said to me was, I really wish I was allowed to talk about this. I really wish, because every time I try to talk about it, people get the puppy dog look on their face and they start having emotions at me. And that's not what I want. I want to talk about me. I don't want to take care of their emotions. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I was like, well, do you want me to write stand up about it? She's like, yeah, yeah, I do. And so back and forth, like I, I would write it and send it back to her and she would correct it and be like, you know, more this than that and this kind of thing. Um, making sure that I was factually accurate and accurate to her experiences and so I've done some of that um that it's not really what a gift it was a joy it was yeah. an absolute joy to do I tell you the weirdest the weirdest night of stand-up I've ever done was doing that for a room full of NHS doctors <laughs> I was oh, I, fun... I can only imagine <laughs> it was wild I have never bombed so hard really uh, really wow. I, well I think one because it's not my experience it's yeah. her experience and I think it's an absolutely valid criticism of that set um and one that I have had from survivors 
yeah. um, is this is not yours, this is hers. I'm like, yeah, but she's not a comic and yeah. she has, she's not a performer and she's asked that this be out there so that there is a performative way of talking about this because we haven't, we don't have a way of having these conversations in a relaxed and constructive manner currently socially. It's just not a thing that we're programmed to do because the, the stakes are so high and everybody's in pain and that's, those are hard conversations to have. Um, but I hear the criticism. I absolutely hear the criticism that it's not my story. And I think partially for the doctors, it was that, but also partially for the doctors, I was calling out the NHFs for some patriarchal stuff. Yeah. Like my, my mother-in-law um, didn't want to have reconstructive surgery after she had a mastectomy. Mm -hmm. She wanted to have a double mastectomy. And yeah. they were like, well, you don't have to have one. She's like, but I don't want them anymore. And they're like, no, you have to have a fake one. My mother-in-law's breasts are immense. She is a gifted woman. Um, I am deeply jealous, but she has back pain. <laughs> and she's like, no, I don't want to be carrying around a bowling ball that I don't need to take it away. And like this whole process is a part of the set. And what that meant for her is a part of the set. And you could just see the doctors being like, I understand your feelings, but also I have diagnostic criterion. There are only certain ways that this can work. And you can see that happening. Yeah. Like the, was it the head of oncology was there in the, in the audience? And like every now and then, like you could see people like looking at him, like trying to get a reaction <laughs> off of him as to whether or not this is okay to say. <sighs> um, but you know, what, what is art if you don't take risks? So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I talk about endo and periods and, you know, I'm such a classic stereotype of oh, women only talk about periods on stage. And I'm like, yeah, pretty much. That's all I do. But you know, it's one of those conversations that needs, needs to be said. And I think comedy is a really valid way. Like your mother-in-law said, like sometimes you just have to get this stuff off your chest and Hey. Like literally for her <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah you it, there shouldn't there shouldn't be any filtering on that like yeah. uh and just because i'm you know just because i'm a woman doesn't mean to say i can't talk about my own lived experience so button up but a cup and listen to it <laughs> <laughs> well yeah but like i is is there a better field for comedy than pain and if 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 roughly half the world is experiencing the same pain once a month why the hell shouldn't we write comedy about that come on <laughs> and it's so random like periods and everything to do with it it's just the most random weird ass kind of stuff that goes down that you're just like i can't even make this shit up like really but like and and there are so many different layers to like the way we talk about it socially and the way it's advertised and the way we can or can't have the discussion and when yeah. and it does and it doesn't happen. And like, there's so much variety and it affects so many different other areas. Like you can yeah. use a period joke to jump into a joke about just about anything else yeah, because yeah. there's nothing that it doesn't have contact with. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So interesting. So on that bombshell, I always end with this question. Do you have any funny period story to share? Okay, yes. Um, because again... I'm loving the expression that you're putting on. I think it could be a good one. <laughs> well, this, this, it takes a little bit of context, as most of my comedy does. Um, so I am a non-binary person. Um, but the way that I kind of... Uh, the way that in trans parlance my egg cracked, the way that I figure out that I was non-binary, is that I was paid to be a man for six months. 
Um, so I was That's performing. That's a podcast in its own there. Sarah. Oh man. Like, it's one of my favorite stories to tell. It's yeah. you know, one, a transformative year in my life and, and two, just so many fantastic people uh, involved in it. Like I could talk about each one of those people individually for ages. Um, but I, uh, as a performer, I was uh, at the time identifying as a cisgendered woman mm-hmm. and, and I was hired to portray two characters in a Shakespeare season. And one of these characters was a man that then in the play played a woman. Right. And the other one was a woman that then in the play played a man. Yep. Um, and so as I was portraying two characters that had gender queerness in their storylines, um, I was hired to be the woman in an all-male cast. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was supposed to portray a man anytime I was with the cast. So if we were out in public, my name was Patrick. Um, <laughs> Uh, which is my uncle's name. Uh, I, I perform as Patrick Griffin. I still have two credits on my CV as, you know, Sarah Griffin brackets as Patrick Griffin, close brackets. Brilliant. Um, uh, when what this meant was uh, whenever the cast would go to see other shows, which we often did, I had to be Patrick. So mm-hmm. I was in drag basically anytime I would go out. So we went to see a production of Julius Caesar, uh, which was being put on by the same production company uh, with a different cast there, there were three different casts and different casts for the same production company and the the thing about this production of julius caesar was blood from the stage that was like one of the big selling points is like the splashiest production of julius caesar everybody like do not sit in the front two rows yeah. kind of thing uh and the whole cast wore white because we're actors and we can't not make it about us yeah yeah <laughs> um, so we're like fuck it stand in front splash me cover me in blood i've worn my white shirt so i'm there in uh blue doc martin combat boots and cut off shorts and this pristine glowing white shirt and my period starts (laughs) um in the middle of julius caesar and now I know that it starts because by this point in my life, I understand the physical sensation of, oh, I'm bleeding now. I know what that feels like. Yeah. Was I prepared for this? No, I was not. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have always had a very irregular cycle and I genuinely don't know when I am and I'm not gonna start. Yeah. So I started in the middle of Julius Caesar and the problem was I was portraying a man. <laughs> I could not go to the ladies room. <laughs> and sort myself out and if you go to the men's room they don't have tampon dispensers they don't yeah. have bins there's there's nothing in there for me the only other option the only gender neutral option was um the handicap room the disabled yeah. room sorry i was using an old american word um uh and the disabled room uh also did not have a dispenser in it so that wasn't going to help me anyway um and i'm not visibly disabled <laughs> So there's literally nowhere in this theater that I can go where somebody's not going to get mad at me for being there. Yeah. Um, and nowhere, and, and I don't have any products with me. So what I did was, because it was our production company, I went into the offices and was trying to find someone in the offices that might have any kind of sanitary product because I didn't... I, there wasn't. I was, I was just about going through my mind going, was there a place where they provided these? No, the company did not provide these. Yeah. Um, so I found uh, one of the people that worked in costuming and all she had was tampons. And at this point in my life, I had never used a tampon mm-hmm. um, because 
funnily enough, tampons were explained to me by a male doctor and he explained them wrong. <laughs> He's like, it's all right. When, when you try to put it in, you'll feel this in there. And then that's, that's how it works. And I'm like, I never felt that. I don't know what you're talking about. And like, now that I know how to use a tampon, I'm like, this is what he was trying to explain and doing it very poorly because he's never had the anatomy. He doesn't know what it feels like. Um, But for, I I was well into my early thirties before I had ever successfully used tampons. And so this woman gives me this tampon and I'm like, um, thank you so much, but I don't know how to use it. She was very, very Northern. And she went, oh honey, just stuff it up there. (laughs) (laughs) And she said it with this, this absolutely blank, you don't have an option, this is what's going to happen, expression on her face. I couldn't argue with her. I was like, (laughs) yeah, yeah, sure, that's what's going to (laughs) happen. So I went and did. And and it was fine. It was absolutely, like, changed my life. Like, I used them for the rest of the run. It made everything so much easier. Uh, So, and, and, like, I, you know, bought some extra ones and gave them back because tampons are expensive and I didn't want to take everything she had. Um, But, yeah, it it was just the wildest. And and then, like, going out and standing in in the audience and purposefully getting stuff covered in blood (laughs) now that I had made sure that I wouldn't actually get stuff covered in blood it was just the most surreal experience oh the irony (laughs) (laughs) and like having to have like a deep voice the whole time i was doing it and stand in a certain way like (laughs) genuinely wearing a fake penis at the same time like for the the first time i ever used a tampon i was wearing a fake penis (laughs) that's my life (laughs) oh my god I think that's going to be one of the best stories I have ever heard. Oh my God. Thank you so much for sharing. Sarah, it's been an absolute joy to talk to you, my love. Um, Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's just been brilliant. Um, Thank you for all the laughs and sharing um, your story. I know our listeners will be, um, yeah, really great to hear that. Um, Can I do a quick plug? Yeah, of course. Um, So if you find me on Twitter at the Sarah Griffin, uh, S-A-R-H-D-R-I-F-F-I-N, um you will find that my pin tweet is a uh connection to a vimeo account which has nine foot square which is a limited web series that i directed and my husband wrote it's a lot of dark comedy um it's about uh, intimate spaces and how we create them and how we fail to share them um and it was all done using socially distanced theatrical techniques um so we've got a huge cast with uh, a lot of incredible performers um and i would i would highly recommend uh, that if you are up for some uh, dark comedy uh, that you check it out amazing I will chuck all of that in the show notes so people will have the links and stuff and thank you able to find it uh, easily because I, I don't know about anyone else listening to this but as soon as I listen to anything like that I'm like what, what was that and I have no pen so I will put it in the show notes so yeah. <laughs> uh, it's all there for people so they can click on it but I am definitely going to check that out sounds amazing um yeah well go and have uh, an amazingly sweaty rest of your day because i don't think we're going to get any cooler anytime soon (laughs) (laughs) and thanks so much for being part of the podcast thanks for tuning in if you loved it feel free to leave a comment and give us a follow you can find more information on my website thewellwomanproject.com or come find me on the grid on insta or on my facebook page you can also drop me an email gemma at thewellwomanproject.com Any information we've shared today will be in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. Big love, Gem.